Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode two of the Final Fantasy VII Remake docuseries, where today we pick up... Actually, we haven't even really arrived yet. I am your host, one half of Switch It Up Podcast, Colby, and last we met, we had just completed going over the entire timeline of Remake, starting with the original Final Fantasy VII's conception all the way to the release of Final Fantasy VII Remake Integrate in 2021. Today we dive into all the speculation and theory crafting with the interest in the max of Remake, all the way up to about the end of Chapter 4. Still TBD on that, could be different, but I'm 95% certain this will end at Chapter 4. Could be a longer one, but I'm excited to get into it, and I hope you guys are as well. Just a quick disclaimer before we get into it, I'm not sure how I'm breaking up this series yet. I don't want to stretch it out to where it's like... 9, 10, 11 episodes long. I think I'm going to keep it closer to like 4 or 5, so that's why we're going a little bit longer with these chapter breakdowns. Still not sure exactly how because some chapters give more than others as far as lore and context go, but I think this series is going to be about 4 at most 5 episodes long, but regardless, I hope that you guys enjoy it and that I will do everything in my power to make it worth listening to. But without further ado... Let us begin theory crafting, speculating, all that good stuff with the 2015 E3 trailer and the opening cinematics of Final Fantasy VII Remake, a comparison that I promised you in the last episode. So we're going to get into that right now. Given that this is a podcast, I will do my best to verbally paint the picture in case you forgot what this trailer showcased, but here we go. First shot of the trailer shows a white bird flying towards the city of Midgard. This is a 2015 E3 trailer. Long ago, we looked upon a foreboding sky, our narrator says, as the bird flies off into into the distance, into the fog, smoke, whatever you want to call it. Cutting towards a station in a lively environment, he continues, the memory of a star that threatened all burns eternal in our hearts. Then we see what would be our first similarity between this and the opening cinematics of Remake as a young girl slides down a playground slide as the Mako reactor lights up with energy within her iris, the same exact shot from the opening of the game. Also exact, it cuts to a wilted flower on the side of the park. In its wake came an age of silence, yet with each fond remembrance we knew, those encountered were not forgotten. Eerie piano music begins to play as the narrator says that someday we would see them again. As soon as this sentence finishes, as soon as the period is dotted, a black feather falls next to a flower in a puddle. We pan around down to what are the slums of the city, and our narrator says, The reunion at hand may bring joy. It may bring fear. But let us embrace whatever it brings. For they are coming back. At last, the promise has been made. From the beginning, we will break this down. As I said, we see a white bird fly into Midgar in the very opening shots as we looked upon a foreboding sky is said. Well, in the original 7, Crisis Core, and later on in the remake, Aerith talks about how she is afraid of the sky, and her exact quote is, not an exact quote, but paraphrasing from Remake, she says that she's afraid of the boundless world beyond and the endless freedom it brings. 
Anyone who knows anything knows that Aerith is deeply connected to the planet and the life stream as any character, more than any character in the game, and with that comes the ability to traverse it. In the original Final Fantasy VII, Sephiroth says at the Temple of the Ancients, this is also my pinned tweet on my Twitter if you want to check it out, he says, I became a traveler of the life stream. He goes on, but for our sake, that's all that really matters. I became a traveler of the life stream. Symbolism, I hope you all know what symbolism is because it's very important here, but that white bird is Aerith. Think of her, think of it as Aerith. Aerith, for some reason not clear yet, obviously not clear in 2015, is coming back to the original, is coming back to Final Fantasy VII in some manner. The live stream and planet has told or sent original Aerith's knowledge to remake to fit into the consciousness of this Aerith, and just like Sephiroth did, Aerith traveled the live stream somehow. It sounds crazy. We're only 15 seconds into this trailer. I'm perfectly aware of that, but th- this is what we're in for. So maybe you need to grab a drink, a snack, sit down, clear your head. Again, if you, you probably already know this if you have context, but regardless, moving on. The memory of a star that threatened all burns eternal in our hearts. Pretty self-explanatory here to kind of bring it back down to Earth after that crackhead theory, but... Uh, this is this is obviously referring to when Sephiroth casts Meteor and attempts to destroy the planet in Original 7. NASA and National Geographic classify meteors as stars, so not sure what else that could be, but seems pretty simple. Staying on the simple page, when the girl and kids are playing in the park and the reactor lights up over the wilted flower, it's saying that this is killing the planet and killing life as we know it. Again, pretty pretty straightforward with that one as well. In its wake came an age of silence, yet with each fond remembrance we knew, those encountered were not forgotten. To me, this is a message straight from the devs directly to the fans. Yes, we were quiet for years, and at this point, it's been about years. We talked about in the timeline episode how the end of compilation was 2009, so it has been six years since any sort of related, relevant Final Fantasy VII news. Could it just be a direct message to the fans that says, hey, we know, but trust me, we we never forgot. Like that's I, I kind of like that. That's cool. That fitting that into this trailer. That I, I like that. That's that's cool. Big big one comes up here again with the eerie piano. The line of that someday we would see them again, and obviously, the black feather falling next to the flower in the puddle. Let's just get that out of the way. Direct reference to Sephiroth killing Aerith at the sit that the Forgotten City, City of the Ancients. In case you forgot, this is where. Aerith summons Holy, and Sephiroth drops down from the underground lake where the city kind of is. You go underwater, and the city's kind of there, and Sephiroth drops down and, you know, kebabs her. But the flower that's alive next to the feather could symbolize the youth that was taken in the act of Aerith dying, like her potential being cut short. Like how, like, in the NFL, like, when a career-ending injury happens to a young player, just all that potential's gone. Something like that, but that's just my opinion. Continuing on, that someday we would see them again playing right off of those encountered were not forgotten. To me, symbolizes the fans' hope that we would see these characters and this story, some form of the story anyway, wink, and this world again. Not everything needs to be giga brain level, so let's just take our small victories here. That, you know, this is just a message to the fans again that, you know, or just a, a message that the fans have been saying, like, hey, we've been wanting to see this for years, but now it seems to finally be happening. The reunion at hand may bring joy, it may bring fear, but let us embrace whatever it brings, for they are coming back. At last, the promise has been made. And the trailer wraps there, but again, kind of put a bow on it. This to me is another devs to fan message. Hey guys, 
that just says, hey, these guys and gals, they're coming back. It's not going to be the same. I think that's pretty uh, – we'll get into why I think that, but pretty self-explanatory if we keep reading here. Um, that may excite you, that may annoy you, but just give us the chance to show you what we came up with. And that would explain how the scenario was only finished just six months later. They knew they were going to do something different. They knew that Remake was going to be remaking and retelling the story and events. And that's the only reason that they were ever going to do this. A carbon copy of the original Final Fantasy VII would have been great, but where's the real excitement in that? Where's the buzz from fans if you already know what's going to happen? There isn't podcasts like this one. There isn't YouTube videos out there with trailers and speculation and analysis if everyone knows what's going to happen. That's why Remake is different. And they were telling you this for years, in fact, five years before the game even came out. So let's just tie a pretty little bow on this E3 trailer with this. Aerith is back, and for lack of a better term, has been sent to meet and or help remake Aerith. That's going to be the biggest sticking point from this trailer going forward. And now for the other side of this coin, the intro cinematics of remake, and I promise we are going to get to the actual game here in just a little bit, but... In fact, we're actually on the game right now. We're in the we're in the opening opening cinematic, so take that. But we're going to talk about this and its ties to the aforementioned 2015 E3 trailer. Let's begin. So, so you remember how? Uh, let's just get this out of the way. Square Enix and these multi-million billion-dollar organizations—they don't do things just because they think it would look cool. Everything kind of has a meaning, and again, that's why this exists to kind of give context and meaning to that exact meaning. But What's the opening shot of the intro cinematic? Go on, say it at home if you know it. That's right. It's a blackbird <laughs> flying towards the city of Midgar. And did I mention the black feather from the other trailer? It's a rhetorical question because I know I did. Now, yes, you astute listener are correct. You used all your context clues that you were taught way back when. That is Sephiroth flying from another point in time. We already knew he can manipulate and traverse the live stream. He told us in the original game, original 7 that is, at the Temple of the Ancients. But at what point in time is he coming from is the question that needs to be asked here. Because the Black Feather itself isn't really in 7, not until the safer Sephiroth fight at the Northern Crater. But even then, the Feather's iconicness doesn't really stem from that. It stems from Advent Children when he enters what I would call his peak level of power, against Cloud during their final encounter on top of Shinra Tower. After he's defeated, I, I, I wouldn't say he technically dies, he just kind of dissolves, much like he does at the end of the original game, and we know he clearly survived that. He was able to manipulate the life stream to keep his will alive. So, what if he survived again, and not knowing all of this, decided to go back and change, or excuse me, what if he survived again, and now, not not, I don't know if I said not or now, but now knowing all of this, decided to go back and change the events of the story so he could succeed. Think about it, and I'm going to give you some more reasoning for why I believe this here, because listen to the music in the opening scene, Midgar City of Mako, and what you hear, specifically what you hear and where you've heard it before, in fact.
that is indeed one winged angel subtly tossed into this track. Again, you don't pick up on it, or maybe you did, but most of us didn't know what it meant when we first heard it in our first playthrough. Again, that's why perspective matters with almost everything, especially when we're talking about this. Listen to any of the One Winged Angel iterations, and that exact tune is there. The original. <laughs> children one wing angel rebirth from this game which <laughs> rebirth totally doesn't have anything to do with final fantasy 7 rebirth the sequel to remake sephiroth being the main guy one Winged Angel Rebirth, Final Fantasy VII Re Rebirth. Yeah, totally not coincidental. Uh, anyway, perspective is everything when it comes to this game, and I'm here to tell you that Sephiroth is attempting to rewrite the original story of Final Fantasy VII, and that will be discussed more, not just in this episode, but probably the rest of the series. But we need to press on, because I know you all have places to be. We pan over, once again, a lively city with cars and shops and kids on bicycles cruising on through. A fun fact from the Material Ultimania... Portraying the new, this is a quote, portraying the new Midgar was a challenge for the developers. They initially wanted to follow a Shinra manager going through typical daily routines or cats, dogs, or children living their lives, but they instead focused on the bicycle riding due to its simplistic nature. That's from the pre-visualization supervisor. I do not know how to pronounce his name, so if he is listening, I am sorry. Again, we see that same scene from E3's trailer with the kids at the playground, the Mako reactor lighting up, and the wilting flyer on the side saying, hey, I'm dying, it's because of that, in reference to the big reactor that just went up. Then, as the camera flips, we get very, very similar visuals to the original Seven's opening when they are in star, when they're in space with the stars and the cameras kind of panning. Could have some sort of cryptic meaning. Maybe that Aerith traveled here, or some version of Aerith traveled here from there, but uh, we'll let that simmer and, you know, preheat a little bit. Like I said, now, we see Aerith praying as Mako slowly leaks from a busted pipe. Music picks up here a little bit as Aerith suddenly shoots up and sprints out of the alley, seeming disturbed by something. During this, though, when the slow hints of Aerith themes, Aerith's theme begins to kind of fade out, it's cut off by Sephiroth's theme. Foreshadowing? Uh, could be. I I'll let you guess. Rudely, someone knocks into our dear flower peddler as she is startled and, you know, flowers get knocked to the ground and she's picking them up one by one, one of which is stepped on and crumpled and wilted and it appears kind of dead. Coincidence? I'll let you answer that. She looks up, the camera zooms out, and now we get the grand scope of it all. The music is now triumphant, as if to say, we are here, we have made it. Goosebumps appear on every fan and gamer, and goosebumps appear on me now as I, as the logo flies in from the top right corner and reads, Final Fantasy VII Remake.
at last, the promise has been made. But then you realize we actually have a video game to play, and that starts with the sounds of a train coming to a screeching halt. Chapter 1, The Destruction of Mako Reactor 1. Self-explanatory here as to what the objective of this chapter is, but we're going to read the chapter descriptions from the game for each chapter in this series just to be consistent and pay homage to the game properly. It reads, Cloud, a mercenary, is hired by a group named Avalanche to help them blow up Mako Reactor 1. Their goal is to stop the Shinra Electric Power Company from destroying the planet. Yeah, so right away we get our, we get our pre-synopsis pre for the game basically right there. We get to meet a lot of central characters here, starting with Cloud, our main protagonist, voiced by Cody Christian, and I'll be shouting out all the VAs in the English dub because they fucking crushed it, and Cody doesn't get enough credit for his performance, so Cody, you are fantastic and the perfect choice for Cloud Strife. Great job. Keep it up. Can't wait to see you in future work. Right away, it is obvious, just like in the original, that Cloud is a powerhouse of a fighter as he takes down two Shinra guards in one fell swoop, delivering a killer line as he adds salt to the wound. Coming with us. Nice and easy. Don't think so. Standing at about 5'7", 5'8", he is of a lean, muscular build and wields a giant sword that he can handle with ease. Cloud claims to be a former member of Soldier, which is Shinra's military elite force. The leader of the group known as Avalanche, however, is Barrett Wallace, voiced by John Eric Bentley, who is very invested in the Final Fantasy VII fandom, so check out his stuff, and he also killed his role as Barrett. Barrett is a massive human being. I remember Moist Critical Charles said <laughs> it's like a Gears of War character ate a Gears of War character. Not far from the truth. Standing probably 6'7", 6'8", is built like a brick house has a gun welded onto his right arm, and probably still easily a member of the 315 Club. From the jump, Barrett does not like or trust Cloud, given he is a former member of Soldier, and Cloud himself doesn't give much reason to trust him in his defense, because he's kind of a dick at this point in the game. Uh, as for secondary characters, we meet three of them here, as they make up the rest of our avalanche forces here with us. Wedge, Biggs, and Jesse, voiced by Matt Jones, Gideon Emery, and Erica Limbeck, respectively. All three of them get massively expanded roles from the original game, and it's very appreciated because by the end of it, you come to love all of them pretty quickly. Wedge is your walking food punchline, Biggs is the one you'd be friends with in real life, and Jesse is the sexual energy. Just to sum it up, just kidding. We will flesh out these three much more later, and deservingly so, because they are truly great characters. Getting into what actually happens here. Okay, we've disposed of the guards, we're moving forward. Uh, does his anime jump, all that good stuff. Cloud is in charge of making sure that the mission isn't interrupted by opposition, aka Shinra forces, guards, whoever that may be. We head into the station, and we see our first Easter egg after defeating two guards and learning how to use the ATB meter. Ads for both Benora White and the play Loveless. Loveless is in the original game. There's even a place called Loveless Street, which we will get to. It's a highly popular play, but is much more relevant in Crisis Core, as is Benora White. Also known as a dumb apple, yes, that is correct in lore. It is a fruit that only grows in the region in the village of Benora due to the soil that is there. It is an actual place in Crisis Core, and from this fruit you can make Benora white juice, which is what this ad represents. After some more confrontation and some ass-kicking of Shinra guards, this is the tutorial for the combat I should mention. We cut to an in-game scene of our characters interacting for the first time. 
Biggs is explaining to Jesse that Cloud is an ex-soldier and quote-unquote professional, so he's happy to have him on the team for this mission. Wedge tries to make a conversation with Cloud, only to be shot down immediately by Cloud's famous not interested line. As Jesse thirsts over Cloud via dialogue you can read and the lock to the entrance is picked, Barrett again shows his dismay towards Cloud as he kind of gives him a forearm shiver and tells him he better be worth the money, every last gill. More combat ensues as we eventually get inside the reactor, and here is where our first real significant story moment happens. As Barrett is again ribbing at Cloud, just won't let up. Cloud gets a quick shot of what seems like pain in his head, and the screen quickly flares to a bluish color merged with the environmental colors and surroundings around it. This happens a lot, so we'll call these brief episodes Cloud has, we'll call them blips. Shout out, Avengers. Nothing really comes of this, and Cloud doesn't really make anything of it either. This also happens in the original in this mission, but not until much later. But can Cloud potentially sense something's off? Knowing that Sephiroth and Aerith kind of mess with the timeline and life stream, is the life stream trying to tell Cloud something, or can he just feel it? Or is it just nothing this early on? Is something preventing Cloud from knowing maybe what Aerith and Sephiroth do? Lots to speculate on, just 15 minutes into a 45-hour game, so you can see what you're in for when it comes to this miniseries. Progressing further into the reactor, Jesse then asks Cloud how he knows Tifa, and if they're close. If you're listening to this, you probably know who Tifa is, but we will not meet her till later, so we will pull off, put off her introduction until then. We get a flashback this time of a first-person, younger version of Cloud, 8 years old to be exact, I believe, walking out of a building, and we see this windmill in this village, and... A younger Tifa, probably also eight years old, calling his name. Cloud seemingly ignores her, to which young Tifa is not fond of. And as he's about to explain who Tifa is in relation to him, Barrett interrupts him as the elevator down to the reactor base opens. From that flashback, both old and new players can imply a couple things with no context to the story. One, he knows Tifa from his childhood, but it isn't clear if they were friends. They grew up in the same village and were neighbors based on how close they were when he walked out of his house, even when we pan back to modern times. Cloud isn't sure exactly what they are. Just has like this visible confusion and conflict when preparing, when preparing to give some kind of answer to Jesse's question. This is one of the most, this is one of many, many underlying plot points introduced in this game and will be much relevant later, not just in this game, but the entire trilogy. So bookmark this in your head. We proceed down the elevator as Barrett gives a speech about how Shinra is killing the planet, one that Cloud has little care for. And this is where Barrett joins our party as someone we can use in combat. During the speech in the elevator, President Shinra and Heidegger, head of public security, are watching our team infiltrate the reactor, and Heidegger mentions if they are the same group that attempted to take the president's life. What Heidegger is referring to here is an event that happened in Before Crisis, the mobile game we talked about, when Avalanche did try to assassinate the president, but the Turks prevented that from happening. The player Turk and Reno, I believe, to be exact. Who organized the assassination, though, was Rufus Shinra, and if you do not know, he is the leader of the original Avalanche. And the Avalanche we meet in this game is essentially a branch campus. They're the same but very different. Again, put this in the back of your head. That's probably a shock to some of you who did not know that Rufus is actually the head of Avalanche. But uh, actually, this episode, we'll talk more about Avalanche and like how that breaks down. But more on that to come. Some fun banter back and forth between Barrett and Cloud continue as they are just butting heads and are clearly not getting along, and the voice actors are doing a great job of portraying that, but regardless, we get to the heart of the reactor. Jesse gives us the bomb before Cloud can prepare it for detonation. He gets another blip, but this time, he sees a black feather land on the reactor floor. This is where 
This is where the first blip happens in the original game. Obviously, this one being a lot more detailed given, you know, just the technology and all of that. But in case you're keeping track at home, this is clue number two that this is a requel, quote unquote, and takes place after the movie Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. I'm not the first one to coin this a requel. I heard it first and Max, when Maximilian Dude coined it that a while back now. But And I hate to piggyback off of the idea but because I want to try to be as original as possible. But this is exactly this the perfect term for it. That's what it is. But... Interestingly enough, Cloud's eyes appear to like light up as he sees the feather falling. And how would he even know what that feather is? And again, maybe it could be he's confused as to why there's a black bird feather almost in the depths of a Mako reactor, which again, a very plausible thought. But, you know, for theory crafting's sake, let's play the game of he recognizes that feather and knows exactly what it means. In my own meaning, again, just my interpretation of it. It is the planet sending messages to Cloud that something is wrong and problems could be arising. There is no concrete evidence in the lore that suggests this. That is just my own take, but I have just cause. Yes, Cloud has Genova cells coursing through him and will be manipulated by Sephiroth multiple times, but this clearly isn't that, I don't think. But, you know, as I talk through it right now, it could be Sephiroth is messing with him for brief spurts. As if he's to say, I'm here and I can do whatever I want to do. But even so, how would Cloud know that what that feather is if he didn't have any sort of message from the life stream, the planet, anything, like, first? Because, as we said earlier, the feather is only really re- relevant in Advent Children, and if this is believed to be FF7 Cloud, how would he know what that black feather represents or means? Uh, the planet could have sent Cloud some context in that first little blip we talked about when we first get in the reactor, so he could be prepared, but I don't know. It's it's a lot to juggle early on here, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out and come up with reasons and theories on it, so that's kind of where I land on it, but I do think that first blip ended up sending Cloud some context or information that prepared him, maybe if he didn't even realize it, for that moment. So, again, I don't know. It's it's a lot to juggle early on here, but the, I, enough of the scrambled egg brain crafting theories. We, we still have a we still have a boss to fight. After he kind of snaps out of it, Cloud sets the bomb and sets the timer. Only real pro gamers set it for 20 minutes, by the way. As the two prepare to leave, the Scorpion Sentinel appears from thin air, jumps out of the clouds, or I guess underneath, uh, whatever, and cuts off our access to the bomb, which begins the timer. I think the timer's the actually no, the timer isn't ticking as the battle's happening because this is still technically a tutorial fight, and it's a, you know the first how to, how to fight bosses and stagger and all that stuff and find weak points. But regardless. Uh, you defeat the Sentinel, it falls into the pool of Mako, which Bear does ask what would happen if they fell into the Mako pool below them, and Cloud's like, oh yeah, the pump would just suck us up. Like, oh yeah, how reassuring. But anyway, Bear and Cloud continue to butt heads during this fight. Uh, my my favorite line being uh, this one right here. A barrier? 
Never seen this defense system before. Sir. Thought you were the expert. So what's your brilliant plan, genius? Uh, clearly just showing that the two still do not like each other and despite being on the same team are almost like fighting each other while fighting the sentinel at this point but regardless as you escape you have to fight off more enemies and save jesse twice once as like a a steel beam like she gets caught underneath a beam and some rubble underneath her leg which you know cloud helps her up and then the other comes later but regardless jesse's interest in cloud is skyrocketing at this point and another anime moment a moment happens anime moment number like two or three so we already have the jumping off the train and now we have as like the bridge we ran to the reactor like the bridge we crossed again the, into the Mako reactor is falling uh cloud does sick anime jumps and unnecessary front flip and lands on his two feet to which jesse's just like that was sick but yeah the bomb goes off and doesn't cause a lot of damage initially but does appear to disable like the Mako reactor like prevent it from working and again uh, President Shinra and Heidegger are watching this like on security cameras and they see that the Mako reactor was essentially disabled but they have an even bigger plan which is to completely turn all of Midgar against Avalanche and because they are aware of Avalanche obviously because of the attempt on his life but like really stir this up into something that is terrible and they do that by unleashing mono drives and sentry rays upon the reactor causing it to blow sky high and cause mass destruction on sectors one and eight, killing innocents, uh, thousands of lives, and just completely destroying these sectors for the most part. Uh, again, the beginning of a long and methodical plan of turning the people's attention away from like the state of the planet and instead being anti-Avalanche and pro-Shinra. Uh, but yeah, our party succeeds, uh, one reactor down. Uh, still not a great way to go about fighting for a just cause, but regardless, we retreat to the Sector 8 sewer system, and all of us have survived so far, so one for one, baby. Avalanche has successfully blown up Mako Reactor 1 and fled into a passageway that leads to Sector 8. Shaken by the devastation wrought by the explosion, the group heads for their base in Sector 7. That is a description... Oh my god, description... That is the description of Chapter 2, Fateful Encounters, the beginning of the fate language, and believe me, you and I both know that will be a theme going forward, so jot that down in your notes or your notebook or whatever. We make our way out of the underground and lay eyes on the destruction of Sector 8 as fire sprawl everywhere and rubble and dust and just tragedy all around us. Our characters, most notably Biggs, Jesse, and Wedge, are noticeably shaken up by this, like, cannot like do not believe that this is the bears the, the fruit that they just bear by blowing up this reactor but cloud being the cold-hearted merc that he is says what's done is done to which barrett agrees as the path they are on now is not one they can simply hop off of but yeah we get a much more in-depth look at the devastated city and witness firsthand trauma which is really cool to see and something you did not get in the original really just a couple screens uh, of the destruction but the citizens are beyond scared, tragedy has struck many of them, and questions are asked as to who could have done this. From the Final Fantasy VII Remake Revisited series that Square is currently running as we record this, I believe they're on like chapter 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there, but uh, anyway, they wanted to put more of an emphasis on the bombing and damage it caused to cast doubt in both our characters and the players' minds, wondering if this really is the best way to fight back. 
From that same interview and sit-down, they describe that Sector 8 is broken into three parts. The first part stretching from when Jesse gives you the materia, if you selected the 20-minute timer option, again, pro gamers only, and goes all the way until you reach the Sector 8 station, which, as soon as you get there, is destroyed by <laughs> destroyed by the ground beneath its feet. Plan A is a no-go, so it's time for Plan B, but not before Cloud has another sort of blip, although it isn't really a blip this time because it's real PTSD from a real event. As an apartment in the distance burns, kind of catches Cloud's attention, he has a kind of a flashback, again, PTSD of that sa- the same village that we saw earlier from the flashback with Tifa. It's on fire and burning, and Cloud looks distraught as he stands in the flames, just kind of recalling a really bad memory, not having a good time. In those same flames, we zoom in on his face, and he kind of gets a shocked expression again, the same one he had when he saw the feather. He sees a tall figure wielding a longsword with slick, long silver hair, in a black jacket. He has green cat-like eyes and looks very evil, but this figure disappears as Cloud snaps out of it for about maybe four or five seconds. Then he, he just returns right away. Now, literally standing in front of him, Sephiroth looks down, like, again, literally, literally looking down on him, he's, he's like 6'7", massive in the scene. Uh, he looks down at Cloud as more explosions and fires rage on. Sephiroth is voiced by Tyler Hoechlin, and if you look up this voice, as, voice acting cast, I'm trying to speak too fast, the English dub anyway, they almost all have ties to, to Teen Wolf, Cody does, Tyler Hoechlin here does, some more of them do, which I, just funny for some reason, but just... You know, Square, when they're completely redoing the cast of Final Fantasy VII, they're like, yeah, let's look to Teen Wolf to get our answers here, which clearly worked. This, the dub was awesome, but I think Tyler did a great job as Sephiroth. I, people are not too high on his performance. I disagree. I'm definitely buying stock here because it cannot be easy to voice him, given not just given his stature as an iconic character and villain, but the range and depth and menacingness you need to have for this role is probably very demanding. So of all the Sephiroth voices, I like his the best. I think Tyler Hawkins did a great job. I think he's, do a great, he's doing a great job in Crisis Core Reunion from what I've seen so far. Uh, at the time of recording, it's a couple months till it comes out. And in Rebirth, I think that, that's, the, that's the stage right there, which he could really take over. But regardless, now in, he did great. Now engulfed in flames, Cloud walks, he, uh, Sephiroth walks down an alley and Cloud follows him, but almost as if he's kind of like forced to. I think now is a good time to separate and distinct what I think is happening with Cloud and these blips. Again, in my interpretation, just my thoughts, uh, we have two different things going on here when Cloud has these kind of episodes. He obviously has problems mentally. It's the plot point of this game, and even with its changes, still the plot point of this game. In Remake, I believe he has signals from the planet, for one, and Sephiroth-induced manipulations slash hallucinations. Singles from the planet are different in that one, Sephiroth isn't present when they happen. Two, he sees events before they happen or is given hints as to what's to come. And three, he isn't in that pain. I want to like I can't think of another word to describe it. Pain is the word I fall back on because like in here in this, he's like in pain. Like it looks excruciating. Like Sephiroth is kind of torturing him and bending Kalab's mind to his will. The blips are kind of like the episodic blips from the planet are kind of just like brief, like, like shots of thought. Again, look painful, but aren't. I don't really know how to describe it, but 
if you watch what happens when he sees the feather versus what happens here, it's two completely different things. But even so, like Cloud isn't willingly going down this alleyway, and like why, why, why would he? Like why would he want to follow Sephiroth? But the mechanics of this also indicate that he's kind of like being like dragged, like behind Sephiroth's trail. So I think that's I think the, so I think this is a Sephiroth-induced hallucination, and what we've seen up to this point are blips or like minor episodes. So I'll distinct I'll distinct which is which when we get to them. But that's what my thoughts right now on the matter. And obviously, Cloud can see these events and all that is going to happen because this is technically a sequel. That's obvious. That's obviously the most straightforward reason, uh, obvious reason. This is a, a requel, a sequel. These events have already taken place in this universe, and the planet is trying to tell Cloud that. I don't know if this Cloud has experienced those events. He clearly hasn't yet, but the planet is trying to send him some sort of signal. And that's where I think the separation comes between the two is that the things that are happening and have happened, those are messages from the planet. And obviously you have your Sephiroth hallucinations like you did in the original game. Before we go on with this actual scene, Sephiroth does not appear this early on in original Final Fantasy VII. In fact, he's hardly in the Midgar story, which is where this entire game is set. And I know that this is a huge problem for people because they think that Sephiroth was just straight up ruined for the rest of this trilogy and in this game, but I just could not disagree more with that, but we'll get there. Anyway, when asked about this, uh, Motomu Toriyama, so again, apologies if I mispronounced that, but the co-director of this game said, we wanted Sephiroth on Cloud's mind and his appearances, to, his appearances this early to suggest that he plays a big role in the world of Remake. Uh, some paraf- end quote. Some paraphrasing there to be clear, but that's kind of the gist of what's going on here. Why he appears within an hour at this point, maybe of the game. But Cloud turns the corner and Sephiroth's just standing there. We're going to be drawing some parallels now and comparisons to other source material because this is a pretty big moment early on with perspective. Here's how it goes. Cloud says to him, "You're not real. You're dead." Sephiroth, I am. Cloud begins to say, I killed you with my own hands, but Sephiroth cuts him off, saying, Oh, you need not remind me. It was the crowning moment of our time together, but that was then and this is now. I have a favor to ask. This is vastly different from the first time the two speak in the original game, which isn't until the cargo ship on the way to Costa de Sol. That encounter goes like this. This is from the original game, about maybe 10 hours in. Cloud says, Sephiroth, you're alive. And Sephiroth just responds with, who are you? Which is just like, whoo, just chills. Because the whole point, up until that point of the game, you're like, Cloud's like, Sephiroth, Sephiroth, we got to stop Sephiroth. He's a big bad guy. You've already got the calm flashback of Sephiroth, and you know what he's capable of. But he's just like, who are you? Which is just, whoo, such good writing. But obviously vastly different from the remake, which we'll get into a little bit more now. My first biggest takeaway here is Cloud claiming he killed Sephiroth. Vastly different from Seven, again, for a lot of reasons, but this this being the primary one. In In the calm flashback in the original game, when Cloud tells his iteration of the story, he says he could have never killed Sephiroth because he's too powerful, too strong, and didn't have the skills, basically, to keep up with him. Now knowing that this is a requel, or we'll just call it a sequel, a sequel, requel, whatever you want to call it, we can theory craft a lot of things here does this cloud actually believe he killed sephiroth five years ago does he actually remember that happening 
This would make the most sense from a story standpoint, given that they've only faced off once, well, ever. Um, and that ended with Cloud tossing Sephiroth into the live stream five years ago, if that's what we're implying here. Or is he referring to another point in time as the plant sent signals and messages to Cloud that he's done this before? Maybe he's referring to the very end of 7 when... We'll get to the end of this game, but the very end of 7 when he's at kind of like the... When he's at the edge of creation with Sephiroth and he omni-slashes him. Or at the end of Advent Children when he uses the omni-slash version 5 and kind of makes him fade away. and Because we already know what happens there. How does Cloud know or think he killed Sephiroth? It's a big question, I think. And a lot of interpretations... I don't think it's made very clear, even throughout this game, how that's a possibility. But, again, I just haven't seen a lot of people talk about that. But uh, it, it makes the most sense that this cloud thinks he killed Sephiroth five years ago in in the flashback. So, we'll ride with that, but some other cool per- possible interpretations there as well. Continuing on now with the conversation, Sephiroth asked Cloud to run away, we'll get into the exact quote here in a little bit, but he asks Cloud to run away after his own, like, preachy philosophical way that tells him that the planet is dying. As he's saying this, it transitions to a first-person Cloud on the ground, like, crawling towards a house as he's watching his hometown burn, to which it is implied that Sephiroth killed Cloud's mother, saying that his mom is yielding to the cold steel uh, and the shivering of her flesh. And... At this point, it isn't said that Sephiroth had anything to do with the, what, as to why the town is burning, but pretty quickly you can imply that he's probably responsible for this. He, he continues on. Were the plant to die, so many things would be lost. That which binds us together would be no more, and I would loathe to live in such a world, which is why I must ask you this one favor. Don't worry. It's a simple thing. Run, Cloud. Run away. Cloud calls him a bastard and charges at him and hits him with his sword, but Sephiroth isn't actually there, obviously. It was all in Cloud's mind. And then Echo, Sephiroth's voice echoes, telling Cloud to hold on to his hatred. So why the hell is Sephiroth here, and why do you do all this is a valid question, and the answer to that will come momentarily. But right after this plays out, the next piece of music to play is named The Promised Land, Cycle of Souls. For those at home listening to this, this is the first track to play in Advent Children, when Marlene gives dialogue, because Advent Children is a sequel to FF7. Marlene's giving dialogue as to, what, as to what events took place in that game. This is the song that plays. This is the track. But regardless, this is hint number, uh, who knows, but hint number XYZ as to Sephiroth knows everything that is going to happen, and he's trying to stop it and ensure his victory. Speaking of stopping things, why did he appear and spew cryptic things at Cloud? It was to slow him down, to try and prevent a momentous event from happening, but due to the defense of the planet and perhaps a dash of fate sprinkled in, it happens anyway.
we get to Loveless Street, and here we see a flower peddler swatting away at thin air, but we can see some outlines of figures like swarming her. Cloud looks intrigued by this, and it definitely catches his attention. As he approaches, she calms down and is no longer pestered, it appears, but right before we can talk to her, Sephiroth appears again. Again, just like 6'7", just fucking huge. He appears in what in what is a last-ditch effort to prevent this from happening. He essentially calls Cloud oh, like a weak bitch, pussy, if you will, but that doesn't stop us from meeting Aerith, who is known as the flower peddler, but anyone who knows anything knows that that is Aerith, voiced by the lovely and ever-so-talented Brianna White, who we will get to at another point in time. Aerith thanks Cloud for scaring those things away, quote-unquote, and Cloud has no idea what she is talking about, obviously, but the conversation moves on, and you can take the flower from that Aerith offers you or ignore it. Uh, you better accept it. And as Aerith pins the flower on Cloud's suspenders, the things reappear. And when Aerith goes to grab Cloud for help, they become visible, and you see these ghostly hooded figures that, you know, are swarming Cloud and Aerith, and Aerith says aloud, like, what are they? Like, asking Cloud almost, or just asking, like, you're just, like, asking a question out loud like you would. Shinrugrants appear to arrest Cloud, public security, but they cannot see what those two see. They can't see the hooded figures. The ghost literally, like, goes right next and circles, like, the grunts, to which they don't react, obviously, they can't see him, causing Cloud to say, are you blind? But then Aerith runs down an alley, and as ghosts follow her, she says, nice meeting you, and we are left to fend off public security by ourselves. Okay, let's talk about the ghosts and just give context as to what they are, because... I don't want to say, and the ghost appeared, and that may or may not be important, jot that down in your notes, for just over and over again as we talk about the series, because the ghosts are the plot. These things are all called whispers, or best described as arbiters of fate, a direct line from, spoiler, Red 13. The whispers are trying to ensure that the events of the original game take place. For example, as Cloud was being lectured by Sephiroth in that alley, the whispers kept Aerith there to make sure that she would meet Cloud. We will spell out and break down more events with the whispers as they take place, but think of them as like the 1997 writer's room trying to make sure that 1997 Final Fantasy VII happens in 2020. And think of Aerith and Sephiroth as 2020 writers trying to retell the story, like they're just fighting each other. The journalism war, people. But the whispers aren't always executed the best. Like they kind of get in the way at times of the story, which could be a little bit of a drawback, but. I do like their concept, and it is a cool little hurl to throw into both Aerith and Sephiroth's plans because this is the planet fighting back against them in a way, even though Aerith is a descendant of the Ancients, obviously. Like, they're kind of fighting back, like, look, not even you can change this. They're both obviously trying to change things in their own way, but at this point, I don't think Sephiroth knows what they are. And Aerith definitely doesn't. She's just as confused as Cloud is at this point. As you can guess, they will both figure out what the, what is happening, and it will play a role in the story going forward. You guessed it, listener. Good job. Anyway, enough um, lore and content, and back to publicly killing public security, which is exactly what we're doing right now. Uh, this is the perfect time to use your deadly dodge material if you didn't grab that, which is very helpful given that you'll be evading a lot. So why not toss around some extra damage while you're doing it? But regardless, as Cloud is fighting his way and resisting arrest in the most ag aggressive way possible, we reach the end of the road and Cloud is cornered with seemingly no way of escaping. However, after defeating the Huntsman, Cloud has, again, a brief blip, similar to the first one in the reactor, where nothing really comes of it, but, again, maybe the plant's sending him a message, because in this instance, it sends him an escape route. He snaps out of the blip and immediately slashes one more security guard, causing the rest of them to fire, thinking he'll give in, but he doesn't, 
and Cloud jumps off the ledge in anime fashion. Again, just anime moment four or five. We're, we're racking up pretty quickly here. And he jumps onto a passing train uh, on the way to Sector 7 slums, conveniently enough. In the same train, the rest of the avalanche wonders about Cloud's whereabouts, only from a knock on the cargo door almost, or in the cargo bay area. And he, he hops on in, again, in anime fashion. Barrett actually shows some concern. He's like, oh, he had me worried for a minute. And then the team's like, what, what is he talking about? Then Barrett quickly snaps into the fake, like, uh, "What do you? What, where the hell have you been? But Cloud asks the team if they've ever fought an invisible enemy, obviously referring to the whispers, the plot ghosts almost. But obviously they have no idea, and they suggest a Shinra science experiment. They kind of give Cloud a hard time. He said they're invisible, and he's like, no, they're, they're in cloaks. But anyway, on the train, a couple neat notes. Kyrie is on the train, the aforementioned character that we talked about in the timeline. Introduced in compilation, was a bigger role in this game. Jesse continues to hit on Cloud and tells him there's such thing as too hard to get as she gives uh, the rundown of the city of Midgar. And the train analogy, which was very popular in the original game, uh, rears its head in the fir- for the first time here when Barrett and Cloud talk about wh- why they fight. And after suggesting to leave and don't look back when not given the right circumstances, Barrett rebuttals by saying, not everyone has the luxury of choice or fighting for themselves, to which Cloud then makes the comparison to the train, only one way it can go. Regardless, the mission is done, the retreat has been executed, and it's time for our heroes to head home. get off the train and celebrate our success, perhaps a little too loudly given the success of the mission was blowing up a reactor that provided for innocent citizens and that we ended up killing and or injuring them. However, this transitions us into Chapter 3, Home Sweet Slum. Their mission concluded, Cloud and the others disembark at the Sector 7 slums, situated below the plate, no natural sunlight reaches the town, but despite its bleak appearance, this is where the members of Avalanche call home. Before we actually arrive in the town of the slums, we can walk around this cloud and gain some perspective and insight as to what the reaction is of the events that just transpired. I think the game does a great job of proposing the question, especially to newer players, did we commit a villainous act? You are sure that this in the that this in the end will help save the planet, but in the immediate aftermath you realize you contributed to the killing of innocents and destruction of livelihoods. People have now been given trauma, PTSD, and all sorts of stuff and can live in fear knowing that this can happen at any moment in time. Just some additional food for thought on top of Sephiroth, on top of the Whispers, and all that, which I think is super cool early on, and all the additional voices and dialogue you can hear via television and conversations, adds a real-life element to this world. Cloud, anyway, Cloud continues on and runs into a citizen of the slums, tearing down avalanche posters, calling them goddamn eco-terrorists, and kind of monologues you know, to himself, to Cloud, to whomever, about how Shinra and all the steelwork is a sign of advancement, and that this is the best thing for the people of Midgar, as in letting Shinra continue doing what they're doing. Sets up more directly for the plot of Avalanche vs. Shinra conflict among the citizens and people of the city. This is a political side of the of the Final Fantasy VII Remake world, one that is often overlooked. You have those favoring mining the planet so they can lead easier lives, and those in favor of finding another way to ensure the planet's overall survival. The planet is a living thing, but not everybody is aware of that, and you can actually hear conversations take place when roaming the destroyed Sector 8, and even here early on in the early stages of Chapter 3 about that, but there's plenty more if you missed on it later. The biggest thing to take away from this interaction, though, is another kind of blip episode moment for Cloud. Again, has a lot of them, so we're going to be going over them early on here. 
This time he sees a piece of the pieces of the upper plate falling down a fiery explosion, and he goes on to like kind of take cover and protect himself until he snaps out of it and realizes that nothing's actually happening. The one who is berating Avalanche asks him if he is okay, then calls him a Mako junkie, which maybe he pieces Mako junkie like figures or goddamn figures, something like that. And maybe that kind of gave me the implication that maybe he picked up on the fact he's a member of Soldier, given he can see his eyes. But the whispers then appear, as to which, again, the guy who was berating him cannot see them, only Cloud. They appear and circle around Cloud before heading towards the town of the slums, kind of saying, like, hey, this is a, this is a great world building and all that, but it's time, it's time to go meet Tifa. And, you know, we oblige and go on to meet the heartbeat of Final Fantasy VII and even Final Fantasy VII Remake, Tifa Lockhart. Tifa Lockhart, voiced by Rip Barron, is a childhood friend of Cloud and the one responsible for getting Cloud on the mission in the first place. Tifa is a brawler in extremely good physical condition in combat, but is, but is kind and adored by all who come across her. She helps run 7th Heaven. She may actually own 7th Heaven, not sure, but regardless, the very minimum, she helps run 7th Heaven, which is a bar in the Sector 7 slums and its biggest attraction, the heartbeat of the slums, if you will. Rip Barron was one of the leads on the show Glow, which was very highly praised. And unlike many cast members, has voiced video game characters before, though Tifa is obviously her biggest role. You may know her as Ada1 from Destiny 2 or ADA1 from Destiny 2 or Tessa Crew from Fallout 76. Bray was fantastic and has become more ingrained in with FF7 fandom as she's had conversations with Brianna White and others on YouTube, so go check those out if you're interested. With Tifa, when, with Tifa when we first meet her is a little girl named Marlene, who is Barrett's daughter and voiced by... I don't know, Briella Milla, who is a 10-year-old professional YouTuber? Like, I, sure, but she did a fantastic job as Marlene. Perfect voice for her. Marlene wears a pink dress, and although it looks like bed attire, she's four or five, we'll, so we'll let it go. You know, you can wear a robe, like, all day when you're four or five years old. Given that your dad's also never home because he's too busy blowing up reactors. But, all, all, long story short, she's adorable, and if you don't love her and smile every time she's on screen, then that is probably on you. Barrett picks up Marlene and rests her on her bicep, which is a, definitely a life goal for me. That'd be sick. Tifa asks Cloud where he got the flower on his uniform, because again, she notices it. She says, where'd you get that? It's been so long. And without even saying a word, picks off his uniform and just hands it to her, which was sick. Final Fantasy VII Remake Material Ultimanium says that Cloud tried to be cool. Quote, Cloud tried to, to, to be cool doing something Zack would do when he handed her the flower. We know Zack, we've talked about him in the timeline episode, what relevance does Zack have this early on in the story, let alone in this moment? Well, keep that thought in the back of your mind. Right as the moment of sweetness, cli moment of sweetness climaxes after Tifa asks when he got so thoughtful, Cloud says, guy can change, has been five years. Which, like, record scratch, the whole interaction, because Tifa says, huh? And Cloud kind of lets that go, asks, says, does he talk to Barrett? But now this is nothing really, it's again, nothing to think of on your first playthrough, but those who 
who know, know that this is one of the many building blocks to a huge plot point Final Fantasy VII, the real story between Cloud Tifa and their past. We will not be spoiling it here, but again, keep just one of the very small building blocks of many in this game that lead up to that big plot point. Again, Cloud asks for his money in full, but Tifa decides now is the best time to play defense and deflect and instead walk him to his new apartment, which Tifa secured for him for free. What a gal. You can hear NPCs talking more about the current events, and you can even hear Kyrie, who, if you remember, was on the train down to the, se- the train we were on coming to the Sector 7 slums. She's spitting some cryptic lies and charging people for it, which is right, right on character for her. During this, informa- during this you know, stroll, really slow stroll, they make you really drag this out, but it's okay, it's fine. You can, get, you can gather some information from NPCs of them talking about men from Wall Market, asking questions about Avalanche, which, wow, they move quick, but that will pop back up again later. Arriving at Stargazer Heights, which is the apartment complex, Tifa gives Cloud all the money the team has, which is only 500 of 2,000 gil. In order to collect the rest, Cloud needs to go on water filter swaps, runs with Tifa, and do some odd jobs. That kind of introduces that whole concept, the whole gimmick, the odd jobs. Before this, as we settle in for the night, we can hear a noise over from apartment 203, which is the one neighboring Cloud and Tifa that Tifa purposefully didn't introduce Cloud to that night. Cloud goes over to investigate by himself, and we get another blip, but this time it is of Sephiroth. Sephiroth the roommate. Kinda. Cloud goes to get his sword, but Sephiroth just like walks towards him menacingly and just like full-blown tackles in perfect form. Right before executing this hallucination of this hallucination of Sephiroth. Tifa like yells like cloud stop and he says get back inside but during that the, the the figure of Sephiroth grabs cloud and gives him visions of robes people in robes with tattoos on their arms saying reunion after cloud snaps out of it he sees a man in those same robes with the tattoo number 49 Tifa says his name is Marco and says and he's got some issues which yeah definitely definitely does some maybe a little light and despite all that, Tifa kind of challenges Cloud, and rightfully so, as, you know, from her point of view, she's, she, Cloud just tried to execute a neighbor at, like, 2 in the morning. And as he's getting, you know, lectured by Tifa, Cloud kind of, like, stays fixated on the man, and you get the implication that, you know, there's something going on here. Again, you know, just another plot point that's big. The rogue men with, who, who are tatted are very relevant, but again, it's not completely spoiled in this game as to who they are, what their purpose is, so we can get into detail another time when it comes to that. But for now, we go back to bed and get to wake up in the morning and begin our new day. Wake up and hear that beautiful remixed overworld theme from the original Final Fantasy VII and make way for 7th Heaven, but not before you meet Marl, the landlady of Stargazer Heights. 
Marl is an older woman and is sort of a leader in this community. She's, you know, the one that everyone goes to for advice, as she'll talk about. But she's a special connection to Tifa, calling her the granddaughter she never had, and threatens Cloud to never hurt her, which we oblige. Marl is voiced by Barbara Goodson. Before we get to Seventh Heaven, we hear the voice of Tara Platt, who's doing the Edelgard voice in Final Fantasy VII Remake, making this my favorite moment in gaming, because this is the crossover everyone needed, so shout out to the wonderful Tara Platt and Square Enix for making that happen. I literally put down my controller and was like, wait a minute, I know who that is, but it was awesome. We begin our odd jobs and get to roam the slums of Sector 7 in daylight. When Cloud asks Tifa how long she's been here, she responds with five years, tying together the remark Cloud made earlier about it being five years since they last saw each other. Or did it? We'll leave that up for interpretation. After the weapons, Vendor chews us out for, <laughs> for a terrible water filter, and the item, item shopkeep hits, hits on Tifa, and Marl calls out Cloud for looking pale. Just really some stuff going on here early in the day in the Sector 7 slums. We become an honorary member of the Neighborhood Watch and are assigned to take out some monsters, which is when we get a look at Tifa in action for the first time. After fending off the mobs in Scrap Boulevard and word spreading of Cloud's abilities and talents, you get your first slate of odd jobs from Weimer. Don't forget to get your Iron Blade from the weapons vendor because it's now on the house because you took out those monsters. He's in a much better mood this time. I imagine most players completed some, if not all, of the Chapter 3 quests just because it's the first time you've had the opportunity to do odd jobs in the game. The odd jobs are as follows. Chadley's Report, which is mandatory given that Chadley's a new character who gives you the Assess materia. Assess allows you to gain intel on all your enemies, and doing so is not only a requirement to 100% the game, but grants you access to new materia along with completing battle intel reports which give you the summons. There are 20 reports that you have to complete in total, and give you anywhere from magical abilities all the way to summoning materia, like I said. Besides that, you have Rat Problem, Nuisance in the Factory, Lost Friends, On the Prowl, and Just Flew In from the Graveyard. You need to complete some quests to unlock others, but nonetheless completing all of them grants you a secret scene with Tifa, which I believe is called Alone at Last. Before we can talk about that, though, the next major story beat comes when a group of civilians are crowded around a house and asking what is going on with Johnny. When, jo when Tifa suggests you check in on it, you see Johnny springing out of his house as Shinra infantrymen tackle him and escort him away and blindfold him. Johnny's a red-haired frat boy-type character who's this game's comic relief by definitely is and it pays off. He's obnoxious to Tool and immature, but you can't really help but, you know, laugh and chuckle at him. Yuri Lowenthal, the same voice as Peter Parker in Spider-Man, voices Johnny. You find out that Johnny intervened when Shinra started asking questions about who stole Blasting Agent from a Shinra warehouse. Cloud doesn't appear to be interested, but you need to save him because Tifa explains that Johnny has suspicions about Avalanche and kind of, you know, kind of knows what they do, kind of doesn't, but he's quick to talk, so we gotta take care of that. Anyway, we go, we go find Johnny, we save him, and he's still blindfolded, but Cloud attempts to execute him because Tifa said he's a talker, so Cloud naturally being a soldier is like, we gotta get him up out of here. And Tifa stops him from doing that, and I think Cloud says, um, you wanna leave, then get the hell out of town. And after that, Tifa says Cloud is scaring her with his serious demeanor and the killer instinct behavior, saying his eyes look different when she knew him back in the village, which Cloud says is the soldier eyes, but clearly... You know, God, there's a different person in there, is what Diva's trying to get at. The two head back and either complete the remaining quests, you can go into the bar, or you can have access to the secret scene. And since we're completionists, we're going to do the secret scene, alone at last. Tifa asks Cloud about what happened after he left the village of Nibelheim. Cloud explains that Soldier was nothing like what he dreamt of because of when he got in. They didn't need heroes anymore because the war with Wutai was over, which is the neighboring country that we'll get into later. That same war is how Sephiroth rose to fame because of his heroics. Thus, more people wanted that kind of power to be like Soldier. 
The Utai War will play a bigger factor going forward, even in this game's DLC, which stands around Yuffie, which is, I've completed that, and we'll be talking about the DLC intertwined probably next episode more often, but we're going to intertwine the DLC with the main story because they happen simultaneously. But to wrap it up, Cloud says he was doing his dirty work for Shinra and there was nothing heroic about it. And despite that, Tifa's happy that you've once again crossed paths and then she suggests you celebrate, which is where you get to choose the refined, exotic, or sporty dress option for her. If you did this right after the Johnny plot point, then it's probably odd to see Tifa do a you're scaring me to let's celebrate our friendship, pick my dress, but hey, it's fine. Upon returning to 7th Heaven to collect the remainder of Cloud's dues, Barrett calls an immediate meeting about the next Avalanche mission, to which Cloud is not invited, but Tifa is. But before that, Tifa decides to put her bartending skills to the test and make Cloud a specialty cocktail, but Cloud doesn't compliment her at first, saying, I bet they would, when Tifa says that most guys would say something sweet right about now. However, she then makes what the specialty drink called the Cosmo Canyon, nice nod, to which Cloud says, beautiful. Killer! So much game, but... Tifa couldn't handle it because she immediately goes to a secret meeting without responding to that. Like, God, what an assassin. Too taken aback by Cloud's wordplay, you get to kill time by throwing darts, drinking alcohol. That's really it. Sit back down, finish your Cosmo Canyon, and the meeting ends. And there's some clear discourse within the team that Tifa airs her disagreements about the direction Avalanche is taking. And But furthermore, and you know, to her dismay, Barrett comes up and breaks the news that Cloud will not be needed on the next mission despite Jesse trying to recruit him back in, trying to speak for him, if you will. He gives him the remaining gill plus some extra and promptly tells him to get the fuck out. Now, this is different from the OG because Cloud is invited on the next mission. I think he's like, I'll do the next one for double. Like he kind of just, he kind of implies that he wants to go, but it has to make it about the money because he doesn't want to make it seem like he wants these friends. But here's our first difference where Cloud is not invited back on the mission. He is just told collects his dues and can leave and do whatever he wants after engaging in super awkward conversations where the team acts like cloud isn't there and it is weird because they'll be like let's talk later then they'll like so uh, what are you talking about and you're like oh god this is cringy um we we, well, we leave seventh heaven and stumble upon hoodlums asking about barrett's whereabouts because they call him the guy for an arm and there's only one of those around and little do they know he's 20 feet right in front of them in seventh heaven but cloud suggests he'll give him away for a price and this appears to be Cloud's way of drawing them away from the bar because they go into an alley, Cloud doesn't spill it, and then you beat the living shit out of them. And these are the men sent from Walmart that were alluded to earlier. And even Cloud is trying to piece together what it might, what them being there might mean, but he just kind of drops it. And again, this is Shinra or, Shinra or Walmart that sent these people to find that information. That's all we know right now. And we go back to our apartment, Stargazer Heights, you know, not really sure what we're doing next because the story's a little bit different now, where Cloud, instead of going on the next mission, Cloud can just do whatever he wants, but not before Jesse is waiting for him at his apartment. How does she know he lives there? I don't know. And with Ifrit Materia as a down payment, which is a summon, Cloud agrees to help Jesse with a top secret job that has to be done that night, even with the big day of blowing up a reactor being a mere 24 hours away.
right, gamers. It is time for the Mad Dash. Cloud agrees to help Jesse with a top secret job topside in Sector 7. It doesn't say top secret. It says secret job topside in Sector 7. When they reach their rendezvous point, however, Biggs and Wedge are already waiting for them. After a chat, the four decide to all go together. This is Chapter 4, and it fucking rocks for so many reasons, and it has only grown on me in multiple playthroughs. Biggs and Wedge fill us in that the last train to the tops to the plate has already left, and they knew Jesse wanted, or they knew or in, had guesses that Jesse wanted to go topside because she wanted to see her parents. At least that's what they think. So they secured two bikes. That's when they all decide to go together on the bike. Though Jesse tells Cloud that the reason she's going topside is not to see her parents again, like Biggs and Wedge think, but to steal a weaker blasting agent to hopefully prevent what happened in the sector one bombing in the sector. I think. Sector 5. It's not really a spoiler. They blow up Sector 5 next. This is when the first of two bike minigames begin. Take it, you boys have your brand spanking new IDs? Yes, ma'am. Then let's lay down some rubber. Crank that crowd. Yay, you got it. Bike minigame is pretty cool if I do say so myself, especially on the first playthrough because it's just, it just comes out of nowhere and you don't expect it. As some banter between the four takes place, Cloud says someone's having fun talking about Jesse who will just not shut up. And Jesse replies with, How could I not? Pursued by villains, a young couple thrust together by fate race through the neon street night. To which Cloud says, Get off in a funny moment, but it's supposed to be flirty and funny, and but we get into more fate talk, implying that Cloud going on the mission with Avalanche and him meeting Jesse. And the others was almost like Destiny. Who, 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 what do you guys think? Could be Destiny. I don't know. Maybe. Again, could be a theme, but who's to say? After thrashing public security, this time on bikes, we were changing up a little bit here, we zoom in on a man standing in the corkscrew tunnel with long blonde hair, a motorbike, but significantly personalized, with a sword on his back wearing soldier garb. Our party doesn't see him at first glance, but later on the same mission, you hear the infantrymen asking, do you think it's him? To which you get a reply, probably. All the more reason to finish this quick. Which is interesting. You get topside and continue fighting off guards until one says, time's up, break off before he shows. And the guards stand down. To We're like, what's going on? Trailing behind and now caught all the way up is a new character named Roche, a third-class soldier who specializes in bikes and speed and is insane. Completely insane. He's killing his own men in pursuit of Cloud just to show off and the two recognize each other immediately as soldier members. 
Roche is voiced by Austin Lee Matthews, who crushed this role as the crazy loose cannon soldier member. Roche introduces himself as Speed Demon, and you duel him on the motorbike. Fight's a little bit annoying at first, once you learn the patterns of his attacks, it shouldn't be too much trouble, even on your first go. After beating him, Cloud jumps on his bike, bravers his engine, and anime leaps back into the saddle of a motorcycle, all while Jesse was watching, just stunning on these bitches. Roche concedes and retreats, and we are now in the clear. Based on how much damage you took, you can get three different Jesse scenes. The most coveted one, and a trophy one, if you want to 100% the game, being when she kisses Cloud on the cheek after saying he doesn't need, after he says he doesn't need a reward. And again, you can get a trophy for this Platinum Runners, so get that smooch. So we initially skipped past it, but I think now is the perfect time to dig a little bit deeper into the characters of Biggs, Jesse, and Wedge. They've been around for a little bit now, and this chapter is for them and for the purpose of making you care about them, because in the original game, you didn't care about them at all, to be quite frank, maybe a little bit, but between the three of them, they had like maybe 10 lines of dialogue and are just killed off a mere five or six hours into the story. They are referenced a little later at Cosmo Canyon when Barrett was is saying he wanted to take the three of them here at the mission's end, but they're merely placehold characters in every context of the word. Here, completely different, much more drawn out, much better story. Getting more into a character breakdown now, Wedge is a heavier set individual, to put it kindly, who is funny, kind, and always willing to help, and loves cats and food. He's this group's comedic relief, but even at that, he has some cool moments in this chapter, which we will get to. Biggs is the most reliable and adult of this, you know, group, group I'd say. He's always ready to follow orders and a straightforward guy who clearly is a thing for Jesse. Also tends to overthink things, which causes him to worry often about the people he cares about. I love Biggs. He's a great guy. 100% someone you'd want to be friends with in real life. And then finally, the waifu of this group, whose stock rose the most in this game probably, Jesse Raspberry. Jesse is a flirtatious, bold, yet... Jesse's a flirtatious, bold, yet lovely young woman and one of two females... Well, two female members in Avalanche, if you do count Tifa as being a member. She has dreams of becoming an actress, but events that we will get into led her to find Avalanche and doing her part to help save the planet. Erica Limbeck, the voice of Jesse, was one of the first people casted all the way back in 2015, so despite all the overhauls and delays, happy to see she still got the responsibility of playing her because she was really good. Moving on, you make your way towards the Raspberry Residence and you get to explore the Sector 7 city a little bit. It's very urban, not outdated by any means, but it's comfortable. It's comfortable living. It is very inner city-like in the way houses are jammed right next to each other, and each one, like, one by one, and they mostly appear to be single-story homes. At least that's what you can tell from when you get an inside look at Jesse's house. Jesse says they were living the good life while people below suffered. And yes, the upper play is much fancier and neater than the slums, but given all of its status, I don't think the upper plate is superiorly super superior or crazily superior in my opinion this is where shinner workers live so you'd think they'd have super advanced and incredible benefits which i guess like like living i don't know like i don't know if this game did a great job of explaining like how terrible living in the slums is because they looked okay down there 
Like, there are houses and residents and, like, shops and places to go. And, you know, I'm sure that they didn't really get, like, clean water, I guess, is an issue, which is a big problem. But then you did the water filter mission. So, like, how terrible are the slums, really? Or how good is the upper plate? So, I don't know if, you know, the... I don't know, like, how this is going to go. I don't, like... How how good is it? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Like, how good is the city of the Sector 7 play compared to the slums? Like, is it really that all that bad, all that different? I don't know. I, but I do think that it begs the question of, you know, obviously the upper place is better, but is this style enough for the people that literally serve the evil empire? Who, who knows? Maybe. Maybe this to them, and I guess that's really all that matters. We get to Jesse's house, and we obviously can't go in because we have a mission, so the three of them being... Jesse, Biggs, and Wedge get to go inside and try the Midgar special, which is a pizza that Jesse's mom makes, and Wedge is like, damn shame you can't try this, and I'm like, damn right, man, but we wait outside and wait for the signal, as Jesse calls it, and as this mission's happening, we kind of get like, Jesse's like narrating over like what we're actually doing, so we walk towards the back of the house, open the door, Jesse's like, don't even bother being quiet, we'll be chatting with my mom, go into the back door, go into the door on the right, and we see Rowan Raspberry, who is Jesse's father, unconscious, comatose, laying on the bed with a with a life support monitor hooked up to him, and Cloud is kind of taken aback when he sees this, but the whole mission, the whole plot is revealed that you have to steal his ID to get into the warehouse, and sets up a cool little side story, get to walk around the, walk around the room of the house, get to see, like, Jesse wrote a letter, she got, she got a big gig at the Gold Saucer, but we don't know much more than that, get to see a young version of Jesse, Jesse, she's playing the princess in the Gold Saucer play, which we'll, we'll get to, I'm sure, in Rebirth, which would be really cool to see. But anyway, you walk in, you take his ID, you walk out and wait for the three of them. Wait for the three of them to finish up eating their pizza, to which, you know, Jesse's like, we, we didn't even plan on dropping by. And that's how you, that's essentially how you get the ID card. But you get outside the house and Jesse explains that, you know, I need to go, I'm the only one who can go inside and get to the warehouse and get this blasting each. I'm the only one who knows where it is. So you three can't come in. Biggs is like, what the hell did we come here for? And Jesse's like, you're going to create a diversion with Cloud and basically take the attention away from me and cause a ruckus out there so they're not focused on me stealing the agent, which makes sense in theory. But anyway, Jesse goes off on her own and the three of us, Cloud, Biggs, and Wedge, walk towards the annex and we get a little dialogue of what happened to Jesse's dad. Biggs and Wedge, but primarily Biggs, explain that Jesse's dad got in an accident. He fell unconscious from overwork and I believe Mako storage and was there for half a day. So basically he has a severe case of Mako poisoning and that's why Jesse led to find Avalanche. She has a theory that her dad's like soul is trapped between his physical body and the heart of the planet. So if the reactors stay on, he'll be he'll just be caught up in the flow and essentially die. So Jesse is fighting to turn off all the reactors so his soul can go back to his body and wake up from this coma. And Cloud kind of laughs, and Biggs is like, what's so funny about this? And Cloud's like, I can relate to this. Like, because he says, like, I know, I understand how you feel, like, is um what he says. And Biggs is like, that's interesting, because they haven't really been able to rate, relate on anything before. But, yeah, Biggs gives a monologue about how, like, Mako is the essence of life, not something you store to keep the react to keep the lights on. And they ask Cloud not to tell Jesse about this because she'll 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 kick the shit out of them as Wedge puts it. And 
kind of a funny moment back and forth. The cloud's like, don't expect me to bail you out. And the big's like, huh, like this guy. And you run off and you get to get to the annex and you find that the guards are already taken out. So someone beat them there. Uh, it's not really clear who, and I can't figure out who did because, you know, spoiler alert, another avalanche is here. So maybe another avalanche did and they're trying to, I don't know, like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It wasn't Jesse, because I don't think Jesse did this. Uh, like, Sephiroth? No, I don't know. It's weird. Like, I don't know who took out the guards in front of the 7 6 Annex. Even in my research for this, I couldn't figure out a clear answer as to who did it. But if you guys know, let me know. That's a very interesting question that I would love to have the answer to. But after Cloud telling him he can do this solo and Biggs is, like, stopping a jackass, um, they go over the plan. And Cloud looks up and sees this kind of, like, windmill-shaped figure, and he has a flashback to the night of his conversation with Tifa about him leaving to become a soldier in which they're both very young. And that conversation plays out where Cloud's like, I want to be a soldier, the best of the best, like Sephiroth. And it's where Tifa's like, that's where the promise is made, the promise between Cloud and Tifa, where if Tifa's ever in trouble, Cloud will come protect her. And in the original game, that promise is referenced as soon as you meet Tifa. In this game, it wasn't. So new players wouldn't know that. But the promise of like, if Tifa says, if I'm ever in trouble, you'll come and save me. And Cloud's like, what? And... Tifa's like, that's what heroes do. They save people. So, like, come on, promise me, please. And that's the promise between the two of them. Again, I'll come back up later. So, just <laughs> back pocket that one for now. But anyway, the plan is now in, act- in action. And the 7 6 Annex happens where you're basically, your fight, Biggs and Wedge are more so cover. They do actually contribute to this fight. They do do damage, which is very nice. But Cloud primarily is taking out all kinds of Chindra troops, guard dogs, mechs, all kinds of stuff. And. Basically, you do the combat stuff, you learn how to use summons, that's another thing here, and at the end of it all, Roche comes back, and Roche is, again, on the bike, just, because in the, I forgot to mention, in the original duel, when you beat him, he says, maybe we should do this one-on-one next time, Cloud's like, maybe, and I guess next time's like an hour later, because Roche comes back, bike's completely fixed, and he fights Cloud one-on-one, and this is where you find out if you assess him, that, Cloud, that Roche is a third-class soldier, so, again, soldier, but, like, the lowest, the, the bottom tier, which, Cloud being a first-class soldier, like, he should be able to literally annihilate him, like, on the battlefield. That's just my interpretation of it. Like, I get he's really fast and kind of has, like, superpowers, but Cloud should be able to take him out pretty easily. And the character of Rose, because we don't see him again after this, is he, that is setting up the downfall of soldier and, like, how soldiers are feared on by society, which we've kind of talked about before, we'll get into more now. The dialogue leading into Roche is that this guy's insane, and, like, he's crazy, he's insane, like, stay out of his way, don't talk to him, all that kind of stuff. You kind of get that with the civilians talking in the Undercity, where, like, soldiers are crazy, like, don't talk to them, don't go anywhere near them, and it's really cool, because it also gets into how, like, soldiers die. Like, if they aren't killed in battle, how do these guys die? And we're going to get that answer here next episode. But yeah, that kind of sets up the whole downfall of Soldier. I'm guessing we'll see Roche again and he'll fulfill this role of like the insane person who's like slowly or I guess quickly dying. And, you know, that's going to be a cool plot point to see played out because you don't really get a lot of that in the original. But yeah, we whoop Roche's ass and we get into, you know, we're about to get caught. Mechs are now we're getting overrun by these guys and. Wedge essentially sacrifices himself for Cloud, 
by getting captured, but before we he before all hell breaks loose, we are bailed out. Who does the bailing out though exactly is another cool plot point because it's another avalanche cell, which leads to the reveal that Biggs Biggs says to Cloud, like when Cloud's like, Who are they? They're Avalanche. That's another Avalanche cell. But Barrett's group got labeled too extreme. So they're kind of on the outs looking in. And we can tie this into first time intermission because I have played integrated now and completed it so I have more context on what this is about when you first get to sector seven is Yuffie you meet the real avalanche which is like they they're they're a group they're an organization they're they're working against Shinra without trying to harm Midgar Barrett's label got Barrett's cell got labeled too extreme because they wanted to blow up reactors and commit commit terrorism and you know do all that kind of stuff so the avalanche we see is bailing out the extreme cell, which is us, Cloud, Biggs, and Wedge, and Jesse. Like right now, Barrett's not with us, but they're they're the extreme cell. And you know, the one guy goes on to Wedge. He's like, "Your team shouldn't be here." Wedge is like, "Glad you glad yours is," which obviously they're bailing our asses out. But again, the real avalanche is not really explored in this game, but majorly implied that there's something up there because in intermission, when a character named ZJ is car- captured. And is like who spilled the information about? I forget exactly what it is, but someone leaked information. Zija says like Rufus, <laughs> which is, and the the guards beat him up, but he's not telling you. He's not lying. <laughs> like Rufus is the one who probably spilled the information because Rufus is the leader of Avalanche, like the real Avalanche, not Barrett's group. Barrett's group's kind of on the outside looking in, but they identify themselves as Avalanche. So if that makes any sort of sense, B- Biggs um, suggested heard a rumor that. Avalanche cut a deal with Wu-Tai for, like, mil-spec gear and rifles and promised Wu-Tai all the materia in Midgar, which is interesting because Yuffie and Sonon are working for, or, like, working with Avalanche in the DLC. So that actually could really be a possibility. That could be something that happened, but unclear at this point. And regardless, it's a cool little plot point that's drawn out. It's new. It's different. Not didn't happen in the original all that much, but, yeah, Barrett's group is not the real Avalanche even though he they, he thinks they are, and I'm sure that'll be something that comes up later in the game. But regardless, we evacuate the 7-6 Annex. Jesse's waiting for us. She's like, where's Wedge? <laughs> Wedge comes stumbling out because he got shot or bit, but he got bit by the guard dog, maybe even shot, but Budge got really messed up. He got bit by the guard dog. He got shot by the mech with the chains. He, he really struggled, and we go down to, we go to get him, and Wedge is, <laughs> Wedge is like, the Wedge thinks he got shot, and they debrief him. They to shout list off. They debrief him, and you know they say your ass is fine, saying that he's a little, it's a little singed, and they smack his ass, and he says and that was a gunshot. And it gets Cloud to laugh, which is like the first time I've seen Cloud laugh. And Jesse immediately calls him out on. She's like, "Is that a smile I spy?" And Cloud immediately goes back into heroism mode and is like, "We gotta go." So you leave. You walk back some civilians. The key, the biggest one being an old woman saying. I killed that. I killed a platoon's worth of them bastards back in the war. Talking about the Wu Tai War, the guards like, "Oh, thank you for your service, but please go back inside," because you know there's there's all kinds of people around the Seven Six now. We're kind of just sneaking by. No one seems to suspect the guy with a seven foot sword on his back is responsible. So, lucky for us. But we go down. To, we take a back road to where Jesse says we can evacuate. Cloud's like, Cloud's kind of like, I hope that mission was a success for your dad's sake. The bitches, Biggs is like, hey, what the hell, man? And Jesse didn't really hear it. And Wedge kind of covers up by saying, you know, he wanted, he really wants to try the Midgar special next time. 
And Claude's like, yeah, that's uh, that's that's right. And Jesse's like, oh, okay, I'll I'll make it. And then they'll 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 kind of look at each other like, whew, that was a close one. But anyway, we get to the end, and here's where the Disney moment happens. It's laugh out loud funny, but we um get to the edge of the plate and we are going to jump off the plate down to the slums with parachutes. And Jesse's like, come back to my house so I can pay you in full. It's Jesse and Biggs. Jesse leaps off without Biggs' consent, to which Biggs freaks out. Wedge goes, um, don't be such a hard-ass bro. And then Cloud says, I ain't your bro. Then he pushes him off, and they parachute off. This is where the Disney moment happens, where Jesse's like, we can take on the world, and like fist pumps, and it's just like, oh my god. But yeah, that's um, that's primarily it for those. The chapter's not over, but for those three characters, that's kind of like their big characterization moment. And again, it's just so appreciated and so cool because it doesn't happen in the original. Now you actually care for these characters on a whole different level and really appreciated, really cool backstory stuff with Jesse's dad and the real avalanche and some funny moments with the Midgar special and Wedge being a decoy for Cloud to kill the guard dogs. Just perfect chapter in that regard. Really was fantastic and among my favorites of this game, but the chapter's not over yet. We land back down in the Sector 7 slums. Wedge is like, can we go check on Biggs and Jesse? They aren't here yet, but this is where Wedge kind of gives the exposition of, you know, Biggs is an overthinker and that Jesse's like, don't let men inside Je- Jesse's house because people will start talking about it. He thing he says, it's, um, it's all a game to her. Don't fall for it. And Cloud's like, you lost me. And Wedge is like, life's a stage and loves the play. And he runs off. <laughs> it's just so, it's again, like, so funny, so perfect. But get back to Wedge's house. We get to meet his cats. Uh, Bigums. Oh, God. I forget I'm off the top of my head. I can't remember him. Mr. Smalls thinks another one. I forget the first. I forget the first cat, but um, Cloud's like, I'm really sorry about your ass. He says it's all good, bro. Cloud's like, it's kind of weird when you call me that. And then Wedge resumes to shove the cats in his face, and you know Wedge is saying he's a big softie. And Cloud's like, the hell with it. And he absolutely goes against what Wedge just said and goes straight to Jesse's house and collects his payment, which is, I believe, barrier materia, which is pretty good. I I have that on magnify does wonders for the summon battles but anyway this is where jesse says now for the cherry on top she goes in for a move and hugs cloud and cloud's like mind letting me breathe and jesse says mind coming over tomorrow and this is when you get the option of um no promises or not interested and i always went with no promises just because the idea of having a you know like the bachelor when you have the two-on-one dates and only one gets the rose that's why i pictured when it's tifa and jesse and you have to give the rose to one of them. So I always did that because Cloud's a player. But you can talk to Biggs. It's optional. Biggs will explain, like, thanks for helping with the mission. You see him over worrying about, you know, Jesse and the bomb prep. But, you know, you tell him to calm down. It's fine. And you go back to your Stargazer Heights where Tifa is. Cloud thinks she was asleep, but he's actually awake. And she's like, you're out for quite a while. And Cloud's like, he's like, yeah, I was just out and about. And, you know, Tifa's like, now that Cloud's not on the mission, Cloud's future's kind of uncertain, so Tifa's like, are you going to stay around Midgar? And Cloud's like, well, my friend's in a tough spot, I made her a promise, this is when we first get the promise, and Tifa remembers the promise, so that's a big deal. Tifa, Tifa and Cloud remembering the same thing happening is a, is a big deal. Tifa's like, can't can't say this is quite what I put on you way back when, Cloud's like, I'm, I'm, if you want to talk, like, go ahead. And Tifa's like, well, what's with you all of a sudden? Like, you're losing your hard edge, and Cloud's like, Cloud's like, concerned. he's like, oh god, no, no, not my... 
not my masculine, not my masculine identity cracking holes, but Tifa's a really glad cloud's back, and they go to bed, and during the sleeping scene with Cloud, the whispers appear, and in Sephiroth's voice just say, like, sleep and dream the sweetest of dreams. This is important because the whispers are just trying to get Cloud to sleep in. Like, that's literally it. They're trying to get him to sleep in, so what happens next can take place and happen, which is you go outside and the whispers are, like, ambushing Avalanche. Only Cloud, Barrett, Jesse, and Tifa can see them. And this is the first time three of those four characters have seen Whispers. They have no idea what they are, and Cloud like can't really explain it. But because Cloud's like they can only make physical con, you, you can only see them if you make contact with them or they make contact with you. And Tifa's like that's really all you can tell me. And Cloud's like, well, yes, that's, that's all I know. But regardless, you fight them off. They have a lot of health because again, the purpose is for them to enforce an action. On hard mode, you literally cannot kill all of them in time. Easy mode, you can. You can the, the enigmatic specter, if you take him out, they all die. You cannot do that on hard mode. It's literally impossible. I tried. But anyway, what happens is the Whispers attack Jesse, and they knock her off the platform, and she injures her ankle. And now she can't go on the mission. So now Cloud's back on the mission, which is what had to happen because the plot goes... Well, the whispers needed Cloud on the mission so he can, you know, so events can take place that pr progress the story, the original story. Because Jesse was originally slated to go, which I think Jesse's on the original mission in the base game, so it doesn't make sense they all just can't go together. But I do like this idea of Cloud's out, Jesse's in, now it's vice versa. So Barrett's like, Barrett's like, here's the thing. And then before he can even say, Cloud's like, I'm gonna need a raise. Barrett's like, done. They shake hands, Cloud gets a down payment, and now Cloud's back on the mission. Before you leave for the mission, though, you can talk to Wedge and Jesse, and Wedge will give you, I forget what he gives you, but if you get the top score on darts, he gives you an item, and more interestingly, though, sorry, Wedge, if you talk to Jesse, she'll say, like, if I didn't know any better, I feel like those things were after me, which is just, again, really cool, but they they are targeting you, Jesse. Yes, you are correct, because you can't go on this mission, even though you were on it in the original, now you can't go on it, because... Cloud needs to go on it for events to take place and all that good stuff. But then we head to the Sector 7 station where our, where our Chapter 3 started. And we head on the train to go to Sector 4 or 5. Regardless, we're on the next mission now. But that is where we're going to conclude this episode of the Final Fantasy VII Remake Deep Dive. And as always, I'm super appreciative for all of you that tune in and listen. If you have any questions, if you have any opinions, thoughts, feedback, feel free to use any of the links down below to reach out to me. I'd greatly appreciate it. Again, just thank you so much for the support. I know it's a lot, but 
this is something I'm truly passionate about, and I was really excited to do this episode, and it took me a lot longer to make than I thought it would, but it's been a great experience. I'm really looking forward to, you know, talking about this game further in detail, and hopefully you guys are as well. Next time, tune in to listen to the chapters 5, 6, 7, and possibly some inner grade talk. We're going to mix in all those story elements together and figure out what it all truly means, if you will, and looking forward to the next one. So... Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you next time.